when the Jews return to Zion and a comet fills the sky, the Holy Roman Empire rises, then you and I must die. From the eternal sea he rises, creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother. Till man exists no more. Welcome to episode 16 of Once Upon a Nightmare. I am your host Lorraine and I'm here to discuss the horrors of the world, be it fiction or real. This week we are going fictional or real, depending on your beliefs. I'm taking us back to the sixth day of the sixth month in 1976 where I discuss The Omen. You've heard the warnings. It's just a church. Something wrong? No, he's just trembling all over. You've seen the signs. It's a birthmark. Three sixes. Now the time has come. Damien, it's all for you. Your wife is in danger. This is not a human child. Don't let him kill me. the all-new collector's edition today. The Omen was directed by Richard Donor and written by David Seltzer. It's a 15 and runs for about an hour and 51 minutes. It stars Gregory Peck as American ambassador Robert Thorne and Catherine Thorne, his wife, is played by Lee Remick. The couple who are pregnant soon go into labour. They're in Rome, but unfortunately the child does not make it. Robert, to save his wife from heartbreak, adopts a child without her knowing. The child that is born on the sixth day of the sixth month at 6am and this child would be known as Damien who is played by Stephen Harvey. He's not your typical child because he is in fact the Antichrist. Once Robert begins to believe that not all is right with his son he sets off to find out where he came from and what he is. The film also stars Billy Whitelaw as Mrs. Baylock. She is Damien's nanny who is sent to protect him. David Warner plays photographer Keith Jennings who sees some rather strange goings on when he takes pictures and he decides to explore that with Robert Thorne. And of course we have Father Brennan played by Patrick Troughton. The Omen didn't stop at the first one, and I'm not surprised with the money it made. With a budget of $2.8 million, it has gone on to make over $60 million. This then led on to other movies such as Damien, Omen 2 in 78, Omen 3, The Final Conflict in 1981, and Omen 4, The Awakening in 1999. There was, of course, the remake in 2006, which is basically a carbon copy of the original. It was very smart with the release date, though. They released it on June the 6th, 2006, 666, The Mark of the Devil. It did well, a budget of about $25 million, and it grossed around $119 million. So overall, this franchise has done pretty well. So as with most of these films, they're kind of surrounded by that whole curse. You know, when you go into this particular genre, people wonder, did things happen on set? So certain things did happen. Gregory Peck was supposed to be on a flight. He ended up cancelling that flight. And that particular plane on takeoff hit a flock of birds and it crashed into a station wagon that was carrying the 
pilot's wife and her two children and killed everyone on board the aircraft and the vehicle. It's quite scary. Um, also, when Peck was heading to England, his plane got struck by lightning, lightning as did um, David Seltzer's plane, who took a different flight. When they were filming kind of the animal park scenes, one of the animal handlers was killed. Yeah, and apparently Richard Donor, he got lots of letters and threats about it, basically saying he shouldn't have done this film and his blood will run the streets, will run on the streets for what he did. So a lot of people get very sucked into all these types of films. Um, you get that with, you know, The Exorcist, Poltergeist, stuff like that. There's a whole, there's a few episodes, I think it's on um, Shudder, called Cursed Films, and it goes into all the funny goings-on within a movie. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's what you make of it yourself. Are these uh, someone trying to tell them something, or are they just things that happen to happen? But with this movie, as soon as you press play, you know you're right in the heart of how creepy this film is going to be, and that is from the music... And when the credits roll, it basically starts off straight away with this really haunting music and the credits are white. The background, the background is black. And then we just have in the corner a little boy standing with the red background. And it's so creepy. And this theme comes from Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, the song is Ave Santana. Goldsmith, he actually did take home the Oscar for Best Original Score, and apparently that was his only Oscar. This was so deserved, as the music really adds to all the scenes. It adds to the fear factor so much. Throughout the film, we hear various tracks, and when, you know, we have the ones with the really, like, the sharp, loud singing, I'm not going to try and do it, it really creeps you out. There's something so sinister in that tone, yet the music actually is really good. And I think for matching what we're seeing on screen, this film actually has one of the best scores and does such a great job. And while The Omen isn't gory, it kind of has that element of reality to it as, you know, people do believe in God and the devil. And, you know, that kind of makes it scarier when you're watching horror films and someone's stabbed. You know, we we know, unfortunately, stabbing happens and you can, you know, you can try and protect yourself with that. You can have you know, something physical to fight. But with the omen, you can't see what you're fighting. People will think you're mad if you start saying your son is the Antichrist and he's going to kill you. You know, there are certain films that are a bit too close for home for some when it comes to religious beliefs. You know, we see that with films such as Rosemary's Baby, Don't Look Now and The Exorcist. You know, they all have that element of the unknown and it's a terrifying unknown because you can't see it even the poster is scary and draws you in a little boy stands and his shadow is a cross and behind him is this red background you can't really see what the child looks like and the use of red in the marketing for this movie also really stands out it's such a blood curdling red you know we see quite a few versions of the front cover of this movie and whether it's the background or the words this red is always there Plus, there's a lot of emphasis on tombstones in the shape of a crucifix. But the main picture, which I think was the original one, that really stands out and pulls you in. The writing. You have been warned. If something frightening happens to you today, think about it. It may be the omen. And then a boy whose shadow is this beast dog type thing. And the mother looks really scared in it. And then, of course, we have the symbol, you know, known all around the world, 666. It's, you know, a number that's associated with the devil. So right off, this poster, you know, has your interest peaked. When we're first introduced to Damien and his family, it is kind of wrong from the offset. Obviously, he's it's not the adoption. The adoption's the great thing. But of course, it needs to be done in the right way. All parties involved, they need to be aware. 
While I can see the intentions to not break a mother's heart is there, it's not exactly the best way to start a family. The whole thing is started on a lie. From the offset, they appear to be a pretty normal everyday family. And obviously to the viewer, we know, you know, who Damien actually is, but his parents are none the wiser. The family are very well secure financially. They live in a very, you know, big house, lavish lifestyle. And while Catherine is unaware of her son's origins, she appears to be living a happy life with her son and her husband. They look like they have a really great relationship as we see them embrace passionately. They do come across as really being in love, the way they walk across the fields as the sun's going down, arms in each other. You know, it's a typical happy family scenario with playful pictures and a family that's just basically in love. But about 15 minutes in, it all takes that sinister turn at Damien's birthday party. We're introduced to Damien's nanny, who seems a little bit odd, but, you know, nothing to worry about until we hear her yell, Damien, 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 look at me. You know, she's yelling, she loves him, and this is all for him, before throwing herself off the house and hanging herself in front of a bunch of very shocked children and adults. I think for me, though, when it really starts to get going and go all nuts is the arrival of the priest, Father Brennan. The nanny suicide is kind of explained away by the new nanny, Mrs. Baylock. So we just accept her explanation and move on that the younger nanny just found it difficult being away from home, being away from boyfriends and all that kind of stuff. But when the priest arrives, Father Brennan, he is there to warn Robert about Damien. He was there the night the child was born. And it's all very frustrating, I find this scene, as he never really gets to the point. I do get very frustrated when I when in films they talk in such riddles and I'm just like spit it out and he basically just sounds like a madman and he then meets him again and the same kind of thing happens but we do find out later that he is high on morphine as he has um, cancer. Brennan does have a rather warped background. His past is tainted by evil. The novel really goes into this with a lot more detail and but Brennan was responsible for the death of the child, the original Thorn child. He didn't die at birth. He was murdered to give the Antichrist Damien a home. But like a lot of people who do fucked up things, he begins to see the errors of his ways when he becomes seriously ill with cancer. He reevaluates his life and decides he wants forgiveness. So when his time comes, he won't be thrown to the depths of hell. So after having a dream with Jesus Christ in it, it tells him that if he repents, he can come to heaven. So he very quickly switches sides. When Brennan does eventually die, though, it does bring up explanations to pictures we've been seeing from Jennings. Jennings appears to, he pops up everywhere Robert Thorne is. The paparazzi is alive and well in 1976. We see him developing the pictures himself. And when he takes pictures of the priest, there's this line that enters through his head. And this kind of gets stronger and stronger as the pictures go on. And we're unaware as to why this is at this particular time. It just kind of looks like a bit of a stain on the picture. And we also see this with the picture of the original nanny, a dark stain coming out of her head. And after Brennan again tried to warn Robert, with Robert not listening, they part ways. The weather then takes this crazy drastic turn for the worse and Brennan tries to seek refuge within a nearby church. The sky is extremely sinister as it darkens with the sound of thunder and lightning. We also, of course, have the uh, lovely disturbing music in the background to add to the ambiance. I also think this scene shows us that his dream about Jesus Christ telling him to redeem himself and he'll be entered into heaven is just that. It's a dream. When he's trying to get to the grounds of the church, it's a struggle. He can't open the gates. They're firmly shut. 
He then mounts this sharp fence. He then runs to the doors of the church. He's frantically pulling them, unable to get in. He then tries another door. Still no answer. And as he steps back, we see this really sharp sharp object on the roof of the church. And then it's hit by a bolt of lightning. It falls and it goes through the priest, killing him. Now, I don't know about you, but this kind of tells me that Christ is not so forgiven. Brennan is stopped at every turn as he tries to, uh, to save himself. He can't get into the grounds of the church. He can't get into the church. And then he's stabbed by something on top of the church. I think the church is saying no. So after the death of the priest, the film then really takes on quite the investigation as Roberts and Jennings try to figure out what exactly is going on. Jennings, the photographer, has taken a photo of himself and found he too now has a sharp object going through him. And after seeing how Father Brennan ended up, Jennings wants to get to the bottom to avoid the same fate. This is when we meet another priest, a priest that was present at the birth of Damien, a priest that believed in the bad kind of satanic worship and this is Father Spiletto. He is played by Martin Benson. At the start of the film I didn't really take much notice of him. I mean why would you think of him as you know such a big part of it. He basically helps a man whose wife is out of the loop about the death of her child, gives him a child that has no mother and it all seems like the perfect fit. Terribly wrong but a baby has a son and a son has a mother and it comes to light that this man is a disciple of Satan and he also initiated Brennan into devil worship. So five years after the whole baby murder switch thing we find Spoleto not doing so well. It's funny how it all turns out for these people. The hospital where Damien was born had a fire and the records were destroyed and Spoleto was disfigured in the fire and now unable to talk. He's in a bit of a bad way. He is then sent to a monastery of San Benedetto in Sabica. And he too now wants forgiveness from God and confesses to those who have taken him in to look after him by using symbols with his left hand. It would appear that on knowing that death is upon them, these priests all appear to have a change of heart, fear and what death could mean where they worship in the devil. So they all do a bit of a big U-turn and they've you know, committed all these crimes. So they're kind of thinking maybe the satanic vibe isn't for them. And uh, like Brennan, Spoleto now wants to redeem himself. It's amazing how many people do such terrible things and then just switch sides when they want forgiveness. After this visit, we do get to the bottom of what happened to the Thorns' original son. While we know he died, this is when it's confirmed and gives Robert more of a reason to try and sort this out once and for all. First, he lost his son and now he will lose his wife. As his wife is getting ready to join him at his request... She is murdered by the nanny. In a panic, Robert calls Catherine to get her to get her to come to him. He fears for her life and he's rightly, rightly so to fear that. Can I just point out that when Catherine dies, it is by the hands of a Mrs. Baylock and also the eyes of Mrs. Baylock. She is terrifying. You put in that creepy music and we have a truly scary moment. Catherine's trying with a broken arm to get ready and failing and then just takes us to Mrs. Baylock, this very close-up shot of her face as she stares at Catherine and she has this little tiny smirk on the side of her face and the camera doesn't move. Baylock just starts walking towards us. Eventually all we see is this one eye and it becomes dark and there's just like this slightest little bit of light in the middle of her eye. This scene is as creepy as folk. I swear to God, I love how something so simple has such an impact and the fear from Catherine, it's her eyes are like terrified. It's such a great, 
a great scene, great acting, so believable. I absolutely love this scene, but it's a shame that Catherine dies. While any death is devastating, you know this is really going to hit Robert hard, and it does. You can see how gutted he is. He was such a supportive husband. He does everything he can for her. The secret about the son, what he did to save her from heartbreak. Also, while they're in bed, you know, she says to him, you know, there's a scene where she's talking to him about seeing a psychiatrist. He doesn't brush her off when she won't tell him exactly what's going on with her. He just agrees to get a shrink. He doesn't push it. He just wants her to be happy. He doesn't try and solve it. He's not a man that needs to off fix all this. He just wants her to feel better. There's no ego. And I feel like he'll just do what he can and what needs to be done. And there's also a mixture, I suppose, of genuine concern and maybe a little, little bit of guilt. Catherine herself is not bonding with her son like she would have hoped. And while this can happen for some mothers, I myself, that happened to me for a few days when I had a baby. Luckily, it did pass. But it's an extremely confusing time for a mother. We, the audience, know it's because the child is not hers, but she doesn't. And as a mother, she knows something just isn't fitting into place. But we'll probably never assume that's because her original child died and she was just given another. Speaking of that child, Damien, I think he definitely needs a bit more of a mention. The thing I find terrifying with him is he's such a small child. He doesn't go around looking like the devil. He's like small, cute, bubbly little boy who wants to play, eat ice cream, look after some animals. He's got his little dog, lovely black dog that's, you know, not at all scary. And Stevens, who played Damien, he didn't really go on to do much acting after this role. He did play a cameo, though, in the remake in 2006. And he's kind of spoken about how he did a couple of movies. And to get this one, he did two interviews, got the job, but he didn't really want to pursue acting. So it is hard to look at this child as anything other than that, this bubbly, happy-go-lucky kid. So what needs to be done to him is really hard to take. All we see is a child. After the death of his wife, Robert visits Carl Bugenhagen in Tel Megiddo. He's an exorcist and an archaeologist where he excavated the daggers of Megiddo. He explains to Robert exactly who and what Damien is, how he bears the mark of 666 and is to be killed. It's the only way. Robert, when leaving, responds like probably how the rest of us are thinking. He can't murder a child. What if Carl's wrong? When saying this, he throws away the daggers he was given. And on doing this, Jenin then runs to pick them up saying I'll kill the boy and this will of course be his demise as a piece of glass flies through the air after coming loose from a moving van slicing his head clean off there is a lot of kind of like head spinning here as it comes off I think they did the scene really quite well and even to this day it's really got that impact and I still don't like looking at it I do still find it quite scary and I think after this revelation this is when I find it quite hard to watch after we see Robert find the symbol on Damien's head, the 666 one. As he sleeps softly in his bed, he looks so innocent, so calm, so peaceful. And then all hell breaks loose as Nanny Baylock attacks Robert to save Damien. And this fight seems really quite brutal. She really goes for it. But, you know, Robert gets away and this is where I actually skipped on watching it this time. I know what happens, but I kind of skipped to the to the funeral. And I do find this whole scene, oh, I just find it so hard to watch. I know he's like the devil and all that. But, you know, there's something about watching a child pinned down like this and watching him struggle as he tries to get his father to not basically kill him. It's hard to take. We first see it as he's driving in the car towards the church. 
He holds him down in the car and you know, Damien's screaming. He obviously doesn't want to be in the church, but he drags him down to the front of it. When he just, oh, when he says this, you know, you hear him going, Daddy, no, please, Daddy, no. It just so pulls on your heartstrings. He's just so little and Robert's so big and so much stronger and it just looks so wrong. I hate this scene and I just can't rewatch it. But then the end happens. Robert is, of course, killed. Kathy is dead. And then the little shit that sucked me in is at a funeral and he has such a look on his face of evil and then he turns that into that little smile. And on a side note, that wasn't actually in the script. Originally, Damien was supposed to look really mean, but uh, Harvey Stevens, he couldn't keep a straight face. He started to smile and then laugh and Richard Donor, he decided that the smile made Damien look even more evil. So it stayed in the movie. And I think this was a great choice because it really, really works. So Damien did a great job of fooling me. I mean, I still couldn't hurt him, but as as until the very last minute, I felt for that little innocent boy with his cute little smile. It's not his fault, right? Anyway, that is my take on The Omen, a great film that I enjoy watching. What do you think? Let me know if you have any thoughts. But for now, something more or less devil child and parents being killed. And that is this week's podcast recommendations. I would like to talk about a podcast that I have followed since its very first episode. I like it so much that I even invited them onto my podcast where we discussed the film Wreck. But let me let the spies tell you from themselves. It's Spy Hards. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And we are the Spy Hards podcast. Together we go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decode the best and worst of spy cinema. Will the film make the knock list? Well, Cam, what is the knock list? The knock list is the need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts podcast. We are curating the ultimate list of spy films. And so we're going to bounce all over the place from James Bond to Jason Bourne to who knows what and determine whether they belong in the pantheon of all time great spy films. That's right. So join us every Tuesday on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Spy Hearts. That's S P Y. H-A-R-D-S. But until then, listeners, good luck among the shadows. Make sure you go follow them on all the social medias and download their podcast on whatever site you happen to listen. You definitely won't regret it. Plus, if you haven't heard of them yet, you do have some binging to do as they have about 14 episodes up. So lots of good stuff in there for you. But just before I go, I'd like to mention a short film from the Bromley Little Theatre by Aaron Truss. It's called The Understudy and it runs for just under 13 minutes and is a horror comedy suspenseful film about what a person will do to get a part. I got sent this over by Aaron and I thought um, I'd give it a little review. It's good to get all these um, projects out there. The film itself is set in a theatre as two individuals, Jack and Hilary, are rehearsing a play when stage director Tarquin must leave and basically throws them keys and tell them to lock up. Jack is the understudy. When both are left alone, these strange occurrences start to go on, but you're really not quite sure what it is. And with it being in a theatre, it does really do a great job of giving you that scare. I do like this location as it's not clear. We can't see behind the stage as there's so many places a person wanting to cause harm can hide. This also makes the film really claustrophobic, which adds you know, adds more to the suspense. Apart from when you see them on stage, which is quite open, we can kind of get a handle of what's going on around them. But when they're elsewhere, there's too many like nooks and crannies. 
and also it's like does a really good job of uh, doing these great close-ups that kind of really keep you wondering of what's going on because I always find with a close-up you can't you can't see anything else and this one it does it at the right time and along with location there's also really good use of color as well it's all so dark and grim and there's no real light and there's this one particular bit where Jack, you know, scared out of his wits because he doesn't know what's going on and he's on the phone wondering what's going on. But behind him is like this backdrop of a red wall, this blood-curdling, disgusting 80s kind of red wall. And um, I think this really fits in well with it. And one other good thing about it is the humour. There's quite a good uh, humour aspect to this film and they do it right from the start. It's kind of just the right amount. I don't I'm not big into horror comedy because I find it hard. I find it hard for people to get it right. But I think this one does it. And the whole neighbours vibe, which you'll have to watch it to find out, did make me laugh. But overall, I did enjoy it. And I thought they did a great job with kind of creating their own thing without trying to be like other people. Had great characters, great acting, great story. Believable. It creeped me out. So mission accomplished for that horror vibe. And this film was also made to support the Bromley Little Theatre. So feel free to donate. They all obviously rely on donations and ticket sales. But during COVID, it's probably been a bit more difficult. The link for that will be in my show notes. Also, the link for the movie that is on YouTube will also be in my show notes. And anyway, I'd also like to say thank you to everyone for listening to the episode on The Omen. Go check out Spy Hards. Go check out The Understudy. And don't also forget to rate and review me on itunes i really do appreciate all the feedback and have had some really nice comments which i appreciate plus um all those who have promoted in some form really good of you but if you want even more of me you can find me on instagram as once upon a nightmare podcast twitter as a nightmare pod letterbox as a nightmare pod email me as once upon a nightmare pod at gmail.com and i'm on wordpress and facebook as once upon a nightmare and you can also find me on another podcast which i do with my best mate where we talk about film and tv called show me the podcast there's quite a few episodes on there and uh, yeah so thanks for listening i will chat to you soon and have a good week bye